Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're going to talk about teaching health and personal development in Iowa schools. There are some proposed changes working their way through the legislature right now, and we're going to focus on proposals that would change requirements for teaching about certain sexually transmitted diseases and vaccines. Later in the hour, I'll talk with an individual who has personal experience with one of the diseases and is very concerned about the proposed changes. I'll talk with Dr. Melanie Wellington, a pediatric infectious disease specialist at the University of Iowa Stead Family Children's Hospital. And later in the hour, Allison Oliver will be here. She is a community-based sexuality educator in Iowa City. But first, to help us understand what exactly is being proposed, IPR reporter Grant Gerlach is here. Hello, Grant. Hey, hey, Charity. Hey, there I'm you here. are. <laughs> Lovely to hear your voice. So, Grant, um, how personal development, health, or what a lot of us call sex ed is taught in Iowa schools varies from district to district. But there are state laws that guide that curriculum in some way. So what what is the law in Iowa? Yeah, and, and I, I will get into that. I just want to stress what you just said, though. There is no standardized statewide sex ed curriculum that schools share. The state has uh, sex ed and and human growth and development education standards, minimum standards that schools have to meet. But school districts choose the curriculum they want to use to cover those standards. So that's just part of the caveat to to this conversation. But in terms of the standards that are in Iowa law, uh, the law says that each school, school board, shall provide age-appropriate and research-based instruction on human growth and development, and that it should cover topics including things like human sexuality, stress management, uh, interpersonal relationships, and also uh, it requires to cover um, HPV, as you just mentioned, and also AIDS. All right. So there are, in this this law, it, there have been two sexually transmitted diseases that have sort of been singled out as requirements for education. And of course, mm-hmm. in, in a lot of education curricula, there would be many more <laughs> diseases yeah, that are also be. talked about. But there are there's a requirement now not just to talk about HPV, human papillomavirus, but also to talk about the vaccine that can prevent it, right? That's right. And so just to cover kind of the, the, the whole grade range, for grades 1 through 12, the health curriculum shall include uh, communicable diseases, including AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Grades 7 to 12, it shall also include HPV and the availability of an HPV vaccine. Okay. Tell me what the proposed changes say. Okay, this gets a little messy, but basically it, basically, there are different proposals that strike those requirements. Um, so I'm going to be talking about a few different ones, and they, they get at this in different ways. But the basic part is those requirements would, would be struck, uh, stricken from the code. So I'll start with Governor Reynolds' uh, education bill. This is her bill that covers a lot of different things in terms of uh, what schools can and can't teach. Uh, it includes... Um, Restrictions on instruction related to gender identity. It includes changes to to book reviews and book challenges in schools. But it also weighs in on what we're talking about here, which is 
uh, sex ed and human development curriculum around HPV and AIDS. So what I just mentioned, grades 1 through 12, it would remove that requirement for AIDS to be part of that curriculum. And for middle school on, it would remove uh, both instruction, uh, the requirement to include restriction on HPV and the HPV vaccine. So this is the, the proposal that's in the legislature right now that does all of those things. And yes, do, do you have an idea why, you know, what is behind the proposal to remove the requirements to talk about HPV and AIDS? Not specifically why the governor has included this in her proposals. She has another uh, proposal that touches on this. It's um, a bill that goes more into other requirements of school districts, like um, the, the, the standards that a, a librarian has to meet in order to work in a school, uh, the requirements for fine arts and world languages in schools. That proposal also touches on uh, on this topic, and it would cut AIDS from human growth and development curriculum, but it doesn't cut HPV or the HPV vaccine. So what I'm saying makes this kind of complicated, but she has two different proposals that get at this in different ways. And so there's, they're both repetitive and inconsistent on this issue. Um, what I hear from supporters of these proposals uh, when these are in, in subcommittee um, supporters of removing these requirements say that uh, when it comes to HPV, they say that discussions of any vaccine should be happening between a doctor and a parent. It's not something that schools should be involved in. There's a lot of vaccine skepticism in their comments. Um, there's um, a class action lawsuit involving the HPV vaccine that they bring up. Uh, so that's that's the perspective that's coming across for people who support this idea of removing the requirement to talk about the HPV vaccine. Okay. And of course, to be very clear, schools are not administering HPV vaccines. They That's are right. informing right. their students of the existence of an no, HPV and, vaccine. No, and Iowa schools do not require the HPV vaccine either. Right. So that is something that is entirely under parental control now, and that wouldn't change in any way. But it would it would remove the requirement to teach about this. So it's also not banning teaching about this. That's right. It, it, it would not ban discussions of HPV or the vaccine. Uh, what, what these bills do is literally go into code and where these requirements show up, it crosses them out. Uh, it also doesn't get rid of any requirements to talk about sexually transmitted diseases, which you th think might bring up topics like HPV and AIDS. But up to now, these have been uh, explicit points in Iowa code that send a strong signal that these are important public health issues that are worth covering in school, and these bills would stop sending that signal at the very least. And also, when the legislature targets certain kinds of curriculum, there can be a chilling effect, too. So that may affect a, a district's decision on whether to cover this material or not. Grant Gerlach, thank you so much for bringing us up to speed. I'm not sure I entirely understand this, but we're, we're going to continue to explore it.
You're All welcome. Right. Grant Gerlach, Iowa Public Radio reporter. And this hour, we are talking about teaching health and personal development in Iowa schools and some of the changes that are being proposed. With me now is Dr. Melanie Wellington, a pediatric infectious disease specialist and associate hospital epidemiologist at the University of Iowa Stead Family Children's Hospital. Hello, Dr. Wellington. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. And I, I want to focus with you on your expertise, which, of course, is infectious diseases, not on legislation. But uh, let's talk a little bit about HPV, the human papillomavirus, because this is a very, very common sexually transmitted disease. And it, it's something that that often goes without diagnosis. So when we are teaching about HPV, why do you feel like this is an important concept for for people to understand? I think the most important thing when we're thinking about HPV to understand is while it is a virus and its main mode of transmission is sexually, um, what it really does to people is cause cancer. And I think we need to not lose track of that fact as we start to enter these other discussions about uh, you know, sex ed and, and and these other, you know, vaccine hesitancy, that sort of thing. This is a vaccine that is safe, effective. It can be given to males and females, and it prevents cancer. And HPV, tell me a little bit for people who are unaware of, of the connection between HPV and cancer. Sure. It's a virus that goes into the cells. Um, for females, it would go into cervical cells. For males, it can go into the cells of the skin of the penis. But also for both or all genders, it goes into the cells of the oral cavity, the mouth and the back of the throat. And it can live there without causing too much trouble for quite some time. But every now and then, when it's in a cell, it changes the machinery of the cell and causes that cell to start multiplying over and over without any checks on the multiplication. So it removes that sort of natural control process that our cells are like, oh, I don't need to divide right now. I'm really not supposed to divide. I'm just supposed to sit here on the skin, right? When, when it, and it takes that, that away from the cell and the cell goes into uncontrolled replication. So the cell makes more and more and more cells and that turns into cancer. And there is a vaccine that is available and, and is a fairly recent vaccine um, that is available that can prevent this virus from infecting you, right? Absolutely. We started using uh, the, the first version of the human papillomavirus vaccine in 2006. And since then, really, even though it's been recent, 135 million doses have been given worldwide. So even though it's recent, we do have a lot of experience with it. And the vaccine we have now is even better because it protects against more strains of the virus. So this is a vaccine, just to connect the dots, and then we're going to take a break. We're also going to to learn about, um, we're going to listen to a personal story from a woman who is infected with HPV and didn't know it for many years. And then I'll bring you back into the conversation. But the, the important takeaway here is this vaccine can prevent cancer in women and in men. Absolutely. Right? And we have been using it since 2006. How effective is this vaccine? It's incredibly effective. It can block over 90% of the cancers that would have otherwise been triggered by the virus. 
All right. And this is, as uh, Grant mentioned earlier, this is not a vaccine that is required by Iowa schools. This is a vaccine that is entirely voluntary. Parents decide whether or not their children receive it. Do we know what the uptake level is for this vaccine uh, briefly? Yeah, it varies from year to year, and it was a little bit lower in the years when people weren't going to their doctor because of the pandemic. But um, in any given year in Iowa, about 40 to 60 percent of 13 to 15 year olds are completing the vaccine series. So just about half. And that's, um, in my mind, a real problem because uh, especially in Iowa, it turns out that the, the National Cancer Institute monitors cancer rates, and Iowa is now the state with the highest incidence of oral cancer of any state in the United States. We're, so we really need to get on top of this. We're going to talk more in just a moment. With me, Dr. Melanie Wellington, pediatric infectious disease specialist and associate hospital epidemiologist at the University of Iowa Stead Families Children, Children's Hospital. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're talking about proposed changes to requirements and limitations for the teaching of health and personal development in Iowa. There are multiple proposals on the table in the legislature, and one of the proposed changes is particularly concerning to my next guest. Under current law, Iowa schools provide information on availability of a vaccine for the human papillomavirus, or HPV. HPV is the most common sexually transmitted disease. Infections often go away within a couple of years, according to the Centers for Disease Control, but can cause cancer in women and men in some cases. The HPV vaccine prevents the development of up to 90 percent of cancers caused by the virus. Again, that's according to the CDC. Laura, who lives in central Iowa, was likely infected with HPV as a teenager as the result of sexual assault. She's 29 years old now and didn't know about the infection until a couple of years ago. And we're only using her first name due to the private nature of this subject. Laura, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here. And tell me how you learned that you had HPV. I learned after a regular annual exam uh, two years ago. I did. Uh, I had a pap smear, which was just part of my regular visit. And my gynecologist told me that as part of their new um, guidelines, they were also testing everyone for HPV. And at first I said, oh, I don't think that's necessary. Um, I've been with my husband for 10 years. And um, so I, I just don't think I need that. Um, and she said, well, it, it, you know, it doesn't show any symptoms and often people don't know they have it until much, much later. So she did do the testing. And a couple days later, I got a call from the, my nurse who told me that it had come back positive, um, which was quite a shock. <clears throat> 
How how did you react when you got that news? Um, I remember I was driving to to work and I started crying. <laughs> um, it took me a while to get myself together before I um, went in for my um, first visit. There are a lot of possible ways that this can go for people who have an HPV infection. Tell me what you've learned about your experience with HPV. This was the first time I had been told that I had anything medically wrong with me. So when I was first told that I had HPV, my cells were abnormal and they came back as CIN1, um, which sometimes clears up on its own. And so at that time, I didn't need to go in for further testing. Uh, They just said they wanted to see me the next year. And so last year, I was in the fall, I went back for my annual exam, pretty nervous to find out what, um, what had happened, if my body was able to fight off this infection or if it had um, had worsened. And I did find out that it had worsened and my cells um, came back as uh, CIN3, um, which is not precancerous, but the level right before precancerous. Um, so I, my body was not fighting off this virus effectively. And what can doctors do for you right now at this state? So after, after last year's annual exam, I came back in uh, for a colposcopy, which is uh, a biopsy, a larger sample than is sent off as um, it's than just a simple pap smear. And um, they, they kind of look and see how deep the abnormal cells penetrate in the epithelium. And it turns out that mine were, um, mine were deeper. And so I had to go in for a more extensive procedure, technically a a surgical procedure um, that I was awake for. Um, It's called a LEAP procedure. And this is the removal of the entire lower part of my cervix, which was about the size of a, the diameter of a a quarter. What are the implications of that for your health in the future? So the the reason they take out that sample is to allow my body to heal itself from within, to hopefully replace those abnormal cells with healthy ones and give my body just a chance to reset. So um, they sent in that sample and uh, they said that the margins were clear, which is good. That means they got all of the abnormal cells out and said that I could just come back for my uh, next year's, so the 2023 annual exam. And, and hopefully my body did a better job of, of keeping those abnormal cells at bay. That is great news, but you must still be concerned about the future because of the risk of cancer, but also because of a risk to your fertility. It, yes, um, it's very concerning. Um, and I'm I'm only 29. Um, my husband and I have been married for six years, and neither of us were in a rush to have children. Um, but with each one of these procedures, they're, it create they create scar tissue. And so that can cause fertility issues because it can make the opening to the cervix of the cervix smaller. Um, so 
Um, I want to mention, I have a classmate right now. I'm going back to school and she is in her mid thirties and she just had a hysterectomy because she had to go through these procedures um, every year and she just had, she just couldn't, couldn't do it anymore. And so I do think about my future self and, and try and put myself in those shoes and, and think how many more years can I go through these before I just decide to eliminate the risk completely and, and have a hysterectomy? And that's certainly not something I thought I would have to consider in my 30s. No. Uh, you are of an age where you're, you're part of the first generation to have possible access to a vaccine that prevents HPV. In your case, you feel like you just didn't get the vaccine soon enough? I had all three parts of the the vaccine of the Gardasil vaccine when I was 18. So, and current current recommendations, I believe, are um, at 11 or 12, and it's for both boys and girls. This this um, it's important to mention that this STI can af- affect um, both boys and girls, can cause cancer in both boys and girls, um, but there is no current test for men. So if people are going in for their, you know, just to, to get one of those STI checks, you know, one of those pee in a cup, um, easy, quick tests, they only test for about five STIs and there are like 30 strains of, um, of HPV. So the, there's a, a real lack of information, uh, sort of an information blackout that, that a lot of people who are adults who are responsible and sexually active are operating in as far as their own risk with HPV and the risk they may be posing to their partners. Uh, the, the various bills that are being considered right now deal with information about HPV, but primarily about information about the availability of a vaccine for HPV, and the different bills are different in different ways. But why does this concern you so much? It concerns me so much because so many people don't know they have it. Um, they can be spreading it around. They can they can be potentially causing a cancer to show up in, in people far down the road. Um, this is a vaccine we can give our children to protect them from cancer. And if I were a mother, that is the least I could I could offer my children, um, if if I had the power to protect them from a cancer. You know, there's no question that I would do that. Um, and an, I want to appeal to those mothers who who think their um, their children don't need this because um, either they're maybe practicing safe sex or they're saving themselves for marriage. Um, they could still be exposed even after marriage. Um, because there is no test for men, uh, their partner could still could still infect them. Um, my own infection was dormant um, for at least ten years, so I don't know where I you know um, where I got this, um, and I didn't know for so long that I had this you know in my body. Right, and and the fact that your infection could very possibly be the result of a sexual assault also underlines the risk. That's not something you could control for. Exactly. You can never eliminate that risk. You know, um, not not all sexual encounters are consensual. And that's why that vaccinating our children um, is just another layer of protection that we can offer them. Laura, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much, Charity. 
Laura lives in central Iowa and is very concerned about legislation that has been proposed that would remove a requirement in teaching sexual education in Iowa schools to teach about HPV and the vaccine that can prevent it. There's also legislation that would remove a requirement to teach about AIDS in personal development or health classes in Iowa schools. I want to bring Dr. Melanie Wellington back into the conversation here. She is a pediatric infectious disease specialist and associate hospital epidemiologist at the University of Iowa Stead Family Children's Hospital. And Dr. Wellington, I'm sure that, that Laura's story sounds very familiar to you. This is a very, very common sexually transmitted disease that can have very serious consequences many years down the line, right? That's true. And it, it's just a, every time um, someone who's surviving with HPV talks about it, it just sort of grabs my heart and pulls. Because one thing that Laura mentioned is that this is very common, and, and I don't know if people really realize how common, but um, about 40% of women in the U.S., adult women, and about 45% of adult men have HPV. They're carrying it. They can pass it along to their partners. So almost half of our country has this virus. Wow. And um, about of those people who do have it, about half of them have the most highest risk types. So those very high risk types of the virus are the ones covered by the vaccine. Those are the ones that are most likely to cause cancer. So this is really a big problem for our country and especially for our state. And we talked earlier about the efficacy of the vaccine. And of course, that's only been available since 2006. And so many Americans have dealt with HPV in the past. I know that you have a a story of personal loss in your family. Your father died of an HPV-triggered cancer? Yes, he did. And and he died right after my parents' 51st wedding anniversary. And my parents met in eighth grade, and they were childhood sweethearts. So just like Laura said, this is something that's just out there, and it's so prevalent. And, um, you know, it, it stays with you forever. Even if you manage to clear the virus from your system, the changes in those cells stay there forever. And so what happened with my father was that he apparently, unknown to him, had had an infection in the lining of his mouth. And then later in life, when his immune system was down, that um, those cells that had been altered turned into cancer. I, I want to... I want to move past this legislation and and talk about education of the the public, because, I mean, of course, children, whether or not they learn about this vaccine in school, children are not the ones making the decision whether or not they receive these vaccines. And uh, Melanie, before the break, you were talking about the uptake of the HPV vaccine hovering at around 50 percent in Iowa. And we know that HPV is the most commonly sexually transmitted disease. We know that it's a huge problem here in Iowa. What do you think we need to do to convince people that this is the right decision for their children? I think you're absolutely right when you hit the nail on the head with education. I think we need to be out there talking to people like we are right now, letting them know this is something that so many people in our country face. And I think the education of the kids is important. Because while it's the parents that make the final decision about what vaccines their children will get when their children are minors, we're talking about kids who are in the age of 9 to 15 years old. And those kids are are old enough to do something we call assent. 
In other words, they're not signing the consent form, but they really need to be a part of their health care and they really need to be aware of what's going on. And our kids are smart and we need to not leave them in the dark about this. But you're right. It is a it is a group discussion. And a lot of people say to me, well, why can't you just talk about it at the doctor's office? And the answer is, well, we do a lot. We talk a lot about this at the doctor's office. But anybody who's ever been around an 11 or 12 or 13-year-old knows they need to hear information from more than one place before they really start to buy into it. So you're right. I think we need to educate people at every level. We need to educate adults. We need to educate parents. We need to educate kids. The kind of thing that doesn't go away if we don't talk about it. It's only actually going to go away if we do talk about it. Well, and and I think that, um, you know, Laura was just talking about this, and it's such an important point, is that a lot of people still feel like this is primarily a problem for women because we know about the association with cervical cancer. But that is not the case. It's not just a problem for women and girls. That's right. It- It can also cause oral cancer, anal cancer, and even cancer of the skin on the penis. And if you look at people who have cancer that's triggered by HPV in the U.S., 42% of those people are men. Not only that, but men who have HPV are not only at risk to themselves, but also, like Laura mentioned, also at risk to their partners. And and Laura also talked about how people can or cannot know whether they have HPV. Is this something that, you know, can I say, I mean, I know that I have regular pap smears and I know that I have been tested, but is this something where an individual who doesn't know that right now can go to their doctor and, and ask to have it identified? We, we do have some tests, like Laura mentioned, but there aren't tests for all the different areas of the body. Um, so while we can certainly sort of test the cervix, you know, if, if there's presence of HPV in the, in the cervical samples, there it could be in somebody's mouth or another part of their body. So it, I think that I tend to sort of just operate under the assumption that everybody could have it. Certainly almost half of people do. So we just, in the medical profession, you know, sort of tend to make assumption of worst case scenarios so that we can help people protect themselves from whatever might happen. And when half of the country has something, that's a pretty good way to just assume anybody could be exposed at any minute. And to have a a powerful vaccine that can prevent it, that that's an incredible tool for doctors, for parents, for individuals. It absolutely is. So we only have about 30 seconds left, and uh, we have moved away from talking about this legislation. But what are you most concerned about? Since this has become a statewide conversation in some ways, what worries you in this moment? It really worries me that we have some tools that can save lives, and we're not telling our kids about it. Our kids do not need to be in the dark, and many people think it's unethical to not teach children save lives. And I have to agree with that. That I think we really need to keep talking about this and we need to not just promote teaching about it in school, but promote teaching about it anywhere we can. Dr. Melanie Wellington, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you very much. Dr. Melanie Wellington is a pediatric infectious disease specialist and associate hospital epidemiologist at the University of Iowa Stead Family Children's Hospital. Coming up in just a moment, we're going to talk a little more generally about personal development or what 
so many of us call sex ed, what we know about teaching effective sexual education, whether in our schools or in our communities or in our homes. That's coming up in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're talking about teaching health and personal development, or sex ed, in Iowa schools. And we started this conversation with some proposed changes that are working their way through the legislature that would remove a requirement to teach about HPV, human papillomavirus, and remove a requirement to teach about the available HPV vaccine. It would also remove a requirement, or one of the bills would remove an requirement to teach about AIDS. Uh, I do want to, we're going to move the conversation into talking about sexual education more generally, but I want to read a letter before we do that. This is from Marilee. She says, I'm in my fifth year of fighting for my life against cancer that began with an HPV infection. When I was younger, they didn't even know that HPV could lead to cancer, and there certainly was no vaccine. I don't understand why any parent would not eagerly want their child vaccinated against cancer, in essence. When I found out that I had an HPV infection, I had been married for more than a decade, and I had been a faithful wife. As HPV is sexually transmitted, people are afraid to talk about it. It doesn't mean that you're having premarital, extramarital, or promiscuous sex. If you get HPV, the percentage of the population that is carrying the virus within their system is very high. In males, it very seldom presents any symptoms, and therefore the infection remains unknown. HPV is not a dirty thing, and it doesn't mean that you are promiscuous or practicing unsafe sex. Again, I strongly believe we need more education on this issue. By schools not teaching the importance of the HPV vaccine, they're endangering a whole generation of kids. Marilee, thank you so much for sharing your experience and your thoughts. And as I said, I want to move more generally to talking about sexual education because it's probably a little different now than it was when most of us were kids. And Allison Oliver is here. She is a lecturer in the University of Iowa School of Social Work. She's taught human sexuality, diversity, and society, and she's also a community-based sexuality educator. Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here. And we talked earlier about, you know, there, there are sort of some general requirements in the state of Iowa that guide what can and cannot be said in a sex ed curriculum in our schools. But the, the curriculum really varies pretty dramatically from school district to school district, from state to state. There are very mm-hmm. a lot of very different approaches to teaching sexual education. And we also know a lot about the efficacy of sexual education. And when I say efficacy, I think that gets to sort of the, the mission of sexual education. In your mind, what is the mission of, of this kind of education? Yeah, well, I think that the, the overall mission is that we want to promote um, healthy sexual decision making. We want to promote healthy well-being um, across all the domains of sexuality, which we know is really vast. And, and something that uh, I was excited about in being um, 
born and raised in Iowa and becoming a sexuality educator is that the the laws that we've had about sexuality education um, actually provided a really solid platform for how we can meet those missions of helping um, our kids, who then become adults, to stay um, safe and healthy. And so a lot of where I came into this work was in um, sexual abuse prevention education and what kind of educational um, opportunities do we need to have uh, more robust um, in order to address that threat to to public health, and and so this, so the the mission in sexual health promotion is how do we have the information and the skills, the values clarification uh, that that really help us to work together as a community um, to pro- promote each other's. Um, health and well-being. So I find it interesting that in terms of the shift that's been happening related to sexuality education in being talked about as personal development, as that term that's used, mm-hmm. in, used in a lot of classes. And this is something that we've actually seen related to effectiveness is that, um, as is talked about with the, the HPV education and availability of a vaccine, is that when we are really working at sexual health promotion, we are certainly focused on personal human development. We're also focusing on interpersonal human development, and we're focusing on family development. We're focusing on community development and health. And so really being able to approach the educational process from multiple domains that help us not just thinking about our own personal decision-making, but also how our decisions, our attitudes, our values affect other people and affect the health of our communities. And, and that's something that feels consistently urgent, um, especially as we hear like what Dr. Wellington spoke about, about Iowa now having the highest incidence of oral cancer in the country, which is, 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 is speaks to how our health education can really help uh, prepare our, our young adults for how to protect themselves um, and each other later in life. And I, I think I mentioned that this kind of education is probably different than what most of the people who are listening right now experienced when they were in school. And I'm a member of Gen X. Mm -hmm. And I will say that it felt to me when I had sex ed in my health class that the, the main push was to avoid teen pregnancies. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was what we were being taught yes. was how not to get pregnant, mm-hmm. how not to make someone else pregnant. And it feels like um, the shift has been to a much more comprehensive picture. And and when we talk about that term personal development, I mean, I think that that's a part of it where it's not like this is an isolated part of life where you just really, really, really don't want to have a baby in high school. Mm-hmm. To this is part of your life. This is part of who you are, and this is part of how who everyone is. Yeah. Well, there. Yeah, and there. That was by design. So some of our first federal legislation that we had about sexuality education, um, like the American Family Life Act, which was passed under the Reagan administration, that was specifically to um, prevent teen pregnancy. And certainly, most of the laws um, federally that we've had that have guided sexuality education have been with that specific focus about trying to uh, prevent teen pregnancy or reduce the the incidence of teen pregnancy. And and it was also about reducing the incidence of sexually transmitted infections. Um, and that emerged out of the 60s and 70s with what we saw actually out of the, in the military um, of, of infection rates uh, that were sexually transmitted and how that became a public health issue. And then in the 80s, it was around sexual abuse prevention. And then we started kind of shifting and doing the evaluation about what kind of education is effective. 
And and what we found, like to get to all of these different um, threats to sexual well-being, that we really needed to look at human sexuality as a lifespan issue, um, that it's something that is growing and evolving and we're learning um, throughout our lifespan. And so being able to really approach it from from a place of just keeping certain bad things from happening to how do we actually promote sexual health and well-being. And that has been in the face of incredible stigma that we continue to contend with that makes these conversations and the educational delivery really challenging. But at the same time that that there has been this movement, of course, we're also continuing to take stock of these metrics, you know, teen pregnancy rights, for Mm -hmm. example. So we have learned that more information, this this larger approach to education is actually also effective in doing what we set out to do so in we the set first out to place, do. Yes. right? Yes, that, can, that when we have um, age-appropriate, developmentally scaffolded, um, so it kind of builds on itself throughout like K-12 education and then continuing into young adulthood, which is what I do with college students, that when that is able to happen, um, we have people who feel more confident and skilled in their sexual decision-making. Um, we have seen reductions in unintended pregnancy, um, including teen pregnancy. And uh, we've seen more consistent use of methods to try to prevent transmission of sexually transmitted infections. Um, and and we also see that people feel more um, skilled in being able to ask and negotiate consent. So all of these things are things that protect us from those sexual health threats um, and promote sexually healthy adults. You mentioned sexual abuse prevention, and um, I mean, that's a very important part of this work. So tell me a little bit more about, obviously, in in educating children about their own bodies, Mm -hmm. they have a better understanding of what sexual abuse might be. And that's a protective knowledge, right? Yes. And this is something that in some of the early work on sexual health uh, and sexual abuse prevention compared to where we're at now is that um, it used to be like just talking about um, the the scary things about uh, about sexual health and, and the unhealthy aspects um, like risk of abuse, for example. And what we found is actually more effective um, for people being able to identify when sexual abuse is happening, for people to be able to disclose it if it's happening, um, to be able to access support, is when we also normalize conversations about healthy sexual uh, development and healthy sexual behaviors. And so that they have a, a frame of reference and also develop the comfort with people around them, whether that be in their schools, in their families, in other places where they spend their time, that um, can facilitate the comfort needed for those conversations to be able to happen that that help them make healthy decisions. This isn't just about preventing a child from being abused. It's also about preventing a child from becoming an abuser. Yeah, and these are uh, the yes. and the and I, I want to be careful about delineating this too, because a lot of people who have experienced sexual abuse, do like harbor a lot of fears that they themselves are going to become an abuser because mm-hmm. of this translation that has has happened. And so I want to be able to preface that by saying that most people um, who experience sexual abuse never go on to abuse others. And the the silence and secrecy uh, around sexual abuse um, certainly contributes to the perpetuation of it as a community health problem. 
And, and so, again, the more conversations that we can help facilitate uh, in different places and that we can give different kinds of like teachable moments to kids to be able to talk with their parents um, and other caregivers are able to really provide um, an arena where kids are getting the education they deserve and the tools they need to be able to have conversations that promote their sexual health and well-being. We've been talking a lot about teaching about sexually transmitted diseases this hour. So tell me what we know about the efficacy of teaching about sexually transmitted diseases into helping students and then later as adults prevent or deal with these sexually transmitted diseases. So I think a couple of things that that come to mind. One is that we know that research suggests is that any sex ed um, that people receive does not make them more likely to be sexually active or does not encourage them to be sexually active earlier. Which um, is a fear that a lot of people it have. Is a really co- it's a really common fear. And so, but because a lot, what a lot of sexuality education offers is about conversations about readiness, readiness across skills, readiness across values. Those are individual values, family values, community values, relationship values, and, and having the information to make an informed decision about different kinds of relationship building and sexual decision making. So with sexually transmitted infections as one of those um, aspects, sexuality education can provide different um, tools and information that help people make informed decisions that I think young people deserve to have to be able to say, okay, if I engage in these certain kinds of activities, here's what things I might want to be aware of, and here's the things that might help manage the risk or make make decisions about my own risk analysis about this. And maybe it means that I'm not going to engage in those particular behaviors. Maybe I'm engaging in my sexual expression in other ways that don't um, put me at risk of these particular infections. And that's just information that they can take and combine with the rest of um, the the things that they're using and, and have been building on to make their decisions. So in Iowa, it, there has been um, a part of the, the law that we have to prevent fact-based information in our sexual education classes. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, there are a lot of values that that get transmitted <laughs> through, sure. through how different districts teach sexual mm-hmm. education. Obviously, that's a big part of this conversation that we're having in Des Moines right now is about values and and how we as a state may or may not want a certain set of values to be represented in our sexual education in our schools. I'm curious that you also teach college students what do they tell you about the sex ed that they received? Is it is there a wide array of experiences? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so this is something we spend um, a fair amount of time in the in the early part of our of our semester talking about. It was the, their own sexuality education journey and experience with it, and and something that I hear a lot about um, is about a third of of my students consistently will say that they never received any kind of conversation or didn't have an opportunity for any kind of conversation with their parents or caregivers um, about their sexual health and. Um, and that for another about third of them, uh, that they maybe had one conversation that was possibly facilitated by receiving a letter from the school about uh, a, like a personal development mm-hmm. uh, uh, class. And so they, they talk about um, like a lot of the themes that I hear from my, my college students are about what they wish they had had. Um, they wish they had um, more information about what was sexually healthy and appropriate and not just about what to avoid or stay away from. 
um, more opportunities to have it feel comfortable to talk about it. Because a lot of them talk about like being in my class feels really awkward and uncomfortable because they didn't grow up in an environment that normalized conversations about their sexual health. A lot of them talk about not having the conversation with their healthcare providers, um, not knowing what tests that they're actually running um, when they have screenings done, which speaks to something that was brought up earlier, is that a lot of people don't know and don't feel comfortable facilitating the conversation saying, hey, I noticed that we did a screening for STIs. What exactly are you screening for? And what can't we screen for? And so that they can actually have some information. A lot of people realize in my class for the first time that, like, there are certain screenings that are simply not possible in a routine screening. Um, Like, for example, that we don't have uh, HPV screenings. um, For men. For men. So it sounds like there's a real hunger for more knowledge. Yes. And are you telling me that young people wish that their parents would talk to them about sex more? It's a, it's a both and. So they, they, say, they say both things. They say the conversations that we have, which sometimes don't start until like 14, 15 years old. Um, and so a lot of them will say that the, the ones who say, yeah, I just I don't want to hear that from my parents, um, are typically the ones who grew up in an environment where those conversations just couldn't be normalized. There weren't conversations around teachable moments. Um, and so it felt weird. It felt awkward. And that makes sense given the uh, the prevalence of stigma and embarrassment that's associated with sexuality. And so it, so it makes sense. There are also those who say, you know, yeah, it's uncomfortable. And I still wish that there, there are just some things that I'm curious about, about where they were coming from or what they were hoping for me. And and, and so we, we talk about messages that our, our parents offer us verbally or non-verbally. And, and I invite them to, if they have those, those opportunities available now, I invite them to actually talk about it now and see what they think. So I think it's something that they, they really try to, um, there's a, to honor their own discomfort right. with it, but also recognize the importance of and it. And there's a hunger for knowledge. Allison Oliver, thank you so much. Thank you. Allison Oliver is a lecturer in the University of Iowa School of Social Work. She's taught human sexuality, diversity, and society for many years. She's also a community-based sexual sexuality educator. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.